0: So much, it's um, really good to hear about, and such a uh, relevant warm up to what we're going to be speaking about today. My name's Beck. for those of you that don't know me, and in the summer after I had finished year 12, you two came to Australia on their worldwide vertigo tour. Anyone go? Yeah, there's a few, few people in the room. Along with thousands of other fans, I had my ticket and I headed down to Telstra Dome uh, for this really unmissable event. I went with my brother and with a couple of other friends and we got there in, in good time, but unlike Matt, we didn't camp out all day in the blistering heat outside to make sure that when the doors opened we could rush to the front and get a spot right next to the stage. And so when we arrived and we walked in, it didn't take me long to realise that I wasn't going to be able to see a thing. We were in the standing up, you know, section in the middle of the ground, and I just could not see. About halfway through, my brother, he's about six foot two, so he stood about a half a head above most other people in the crowd. And he said to me, Beck, do you want me to lift you up? He lifted me up did my whole experience change? Because for the first time, I could see. And I couldn't help but feel a little bit like Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus is one that we love to tell kids about this short tax collector who climbed up a tree so that he could see Jesus. And usually when I read the story of Zacchaeus, I relate most to Zacchaeus. But for the past few weeks, we have been exploring this topic quietly, loud. We've been asking the question, how do we posture ourselves as followers of Jesus to express our convictions, but with humble confidence? And so today, instead of comparing ourselves to Zacchaeus, which we're usually quite tempted to do, we're going to look at the example that Jesus set. And consider how our lives might change if we were to live a little bit more as he did. We're going to read today from Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. So if you'd like to grab your Bible or your phone to follow along, you can. But just for some context, I'm actually going to start way back in Luke chapter 9, where it says that as the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Again, in chapter 10, 13 and 17, it continues to tell us that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. It says he set out resolutely. You could say determinedly, decisively, purposefully. Jesus was travelling with purpose. He was headed to the place where all of the pieces of his story would come to a climax in his death and resurrection. Luke 10 also tells us that... As he travelled, Jesus actually sent out disciples ahead of him to the towns and villages that he was going to go to so that they were expecting him whenever he stopped along the way. And today's story takes place in Jericho. But in the lead-up to his arrival here, Jesus has stopped to visit with Mary and Martha. He's taught the disciples how to pray uh, he'd cast out demons. He'd criticised a whole lot of religious leaders. Uh, he'd caused a bit of a stir by healing on the Sabbath. Uh, and he'd taught all these large crowds that had followed him wherever he went. And so I'm sure that by the time he arrived in Jericho, the citizens in Jericho had heard about many of these events. And they would have been really eager to see what Jesus was going to do when he visited them. Verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He didn't plan to stay. This news would have been met with a really inevitable sense of disappointment. Because the people of Jericho, they would have prepared themselves for Jesus' visit. Um, They would have chosen an honourable host who would have been able to um, be hospitable towards Jesus um, and that would have really brought honour to the whole community. And so the scene that is about to unfold needs to be understood in light of this discontent. It says in verse 2 that there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. Here we meet our main character, Zacchaeus, town tax collector who's spent his life taking from the Jews what the Romans required. Not only is he a tax collector, though, he's kind of like the head of the local taxation department. He sends out all his underlings to go and collect the taxes, then he scrapes a little bit off the top from everyone before giving it to the Romans. Now, Zacchaeus is probably one of the only people who actually knew what the Romans required. And so the scope for economic injustice here is huge. And Jericho is a really important trade route. It's the centre of a great deal of wealth. And so Zacchaeus has naturally become very wealthy. Tax collectors in general were despised. They and their families were considered to be unclean. In the vocabulary of the day, tax sinners, tax sinners, tax collectors and sinners were one and the same. And so naturally the town of Jericho, they, they hated Zacchaeus. He had used his power to oppress the Jews and he had become a complete social outcast. Verse 3 and 4 tell us that he wanted to see Jesus, but because he was so short... He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. We don't know why Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. But unfortunately for him, being short and hated was not a good combination. Had Zacchaeus been respected, the crowd would have naturally made way for such a rich and powerful person. But a person like Zacchaeus needed to avoid crowds as a matter of personal safety. He needed to watch his back because who who knew what would happen to him if he was to try and push through a crowd. But despite Zacchaeus' desire, um, despite all this, his desire to see Jesus is so strong that he actually carries out two fairly unusual acts. Firstly, he ran. Now, Middle Eastern adults do not run in public if they wish to avoid public shame. And so Zacchaeus did his best to avoid shame by running ahead of the crowds. And then he carried out his second highly unusual act, which was that he climbed a tree might not seem so unusual for us, but in the Middle East, powerful and prominent men do not climb trees, even within the confines of their own walled gardens. It was just not something that they did. And so, Zakia breaks um, within his own culture by both running and climbing this tree. And he probably desperately hopes that neither of these acts are really going to be observed, And so he carefully chooses a sycamore tree, probably for two reasons. One is that sycamore trees have really large and low branches, which makes them easy to climb, but also easy to hide in. Zacchaeus was probably hoping that from his vantage point, he might be able to see Jesus, but that he might not be able to be seen. And secondly, sycamore trees were only allowed some distance out of the town, which means that Zacchaeus chose to climb a tree that was actually positioned on the way out of Jericho. So perhaps he was hoping that by the time Jesus got to him, the crowds might have dispersed a little bit. And so I think we've now set the scene. And as we work today to discover, what would it look like if we were to posture ourselves as Jesus did? Let's observe how Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus, remembering that Zacchaeus was a powerful, corrupt, greedy, social outcast who, for some reason, desperately desired in his heart to see Jesus. In verse 5, it tells us, When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. The first thing that jumps out at me is that Jesus has changed his plans. He'd previously made it really clear that he was just passing through. And we assume that he's actually already turned down the planned hospitality that was to be provided to him by an honourable host. But when he sees Zacchaeus, he decides that he's going to stay. He's not just going to pass through anymore. And he stops and he uses this strong expression. He says, I must stay. He doesn't say, oh, I think I'm getting a bit tired. I'd like to stay at your place. He says, I must be a guest in your home. Jesus indicates that actually visiting Zacchaeus has become something that's very important to him. And so I noticed that whilst he was determined and walking to Jerusalem, he wasn't walking there with his blinkers on. But he actually had his eyes open and his heart ready to respond, to pivot and to change plans when he felt convicted to do so. And I wonder whether this is a challenge for you whether you need to consider the ways that you might be able to promote a greater awareness of the Holy Spirit directing your attention to the things in your day that are important. It may be as simple as a daily invitation for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the important things of that day. It sounds simple, but I'm personally quite challenged by it. I... uh, I think I'm challenged because respond, responding to a God-given prompting or a conviction can come at a cost. I'm a pretty focused person. I've always got lots of ideas about the things that I need to fit into my day. And so the biggest question for me is, am I willing to reorganise or to delay some of the things that are important to me in order to respond to a prompting ...or a God-given conviction. Are God's plans for my day... ...more important than my plans for my day? I wonder if that's something that you find challenging too. Secondly, if we look a little deeper... ...we might wonder... ...what had happened in the moments... ...before Jesus arrived at that spot? Why was Zacchaeus so easy to spot... ...when he'd been trying to hide... And how did Jesus know his name and why did he acknowledge him at all? I want you to indulge me for a minute by imagining yourself as a Jewish citizen in Jericho at the time. You know Zacchaeus, but he has always been in a position of power over you. With the authority of the Romans protecting him, you have never dared to actually express your disgust of him to his face. But, oh, have his greedy exploitations of you and your neighbours made you angry. But on this particular day, you find yourself walking in a crowd on the outskirts of town and you're dragging your feet a little because you've been wanting to spend time with Jesus but he's got no intention of staying. And so as you drag your feet up the last stretch of road before Jesus intends to go on without you, your attention's turned as you notice there's this small gathering of people laughing at the foot of a a tree over there. And to your surprise... Discover Zacchaeus is up the tree he seems embarrassed as maybe he must have been trying to hide but he hasn't done a good enough job of that and he's been spotted more and more people begin to gather around the tree and their laughter bubbles over and as Zacchaeus's humiliation becomes more evident the crowd can't help but begin to hurl insults at him Because in contrast to his heavily guarded office, Zacchaeus is no longer in a position of power. He is vulnerable, alone and humiliated. And from the anonymity of the crowd, you you find yourself finding a a few choice words that you share at the foot of this tree. One insult stimulates another insult and the atmosphere quickly darkens and there's this sense of anticipated violence. Perhaps this is the atmosphere that Jesus walks into on his way out of Jericho. Jesus astutely sizes up all of the tensions of the scene and he decides to intervene. But how? Jesus was expected to support the oppressed, which in this case would be the people of Jericho because they had been oppressed by Zacchaeus and his greedy schemes. And so perhaps the people expected him to respond to Zacchaeus with some words of judgment. Perhaps something like this is completely made up. Zacchaeus, you're an oppressor of these good people. You've squashed their livelihoods and given what is theirs to the imperialists. You've betrayed your country and your God, and this community's hatred of you is fully justified. You must quit your job, repent, journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, and then return to Jericho and apply yourself to keeping the law. If you're willing to do these things, on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your newly purified house and offer... My congratulations. Had Jesus said something like this, I think he probably would have received enthusiastic applause. But instead, having already signalled that he did not intend to spend the night in their town, he changes his mind and he invites himself into the house of one of Jericho's most despised residents. It's unthinkable. And in, unsurprisingly, in verse seven, it says, "But the people were displeased. They had gone to, that he had gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, and they grumbled." In the eyes of all the witnesses here, Zacchaeus, um, Zacchaeus's house was defiled. And if Jesus entered that house, he, if he sat on the chairs, if he slept in the guest bed, then the following morning he would emerge defiled and in need. ...of ceremonial cleansing. And so there's clear disapproval from the crowd. They begin to grumble and murmur under their breath. Jesus wasn't silly. He would have been fully aware of who Zacchaeus was... ...and why going to his house was a decision... ...met with disapproval. But unlike everyone else in the crowd... I think that Jesus was not afraid that his proximity to Zacchaeus would result in personal compromise or contamination. And so instead, in the face of criticism, Jesus was prepared to crush the social hierarchy by staying with this social outcast and in so doing show that he cared more about being clean on the inside than being clean on the outside. Following this prompting to stay at Zacchaeus' house was more important to Jesus than following the social norms and being held in high esteem. And I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not sure if I want to do that. (laughs) Because I'm an A-class people pleaser. (laughs) And so the very idea of choosing not to be influenced by the expectations, values and judgments of the people around me is something that I find so hard. And so I look at Jesus and I ask, how did he do that? And my basic conclusion is that Jesus knew who he was. He didn't look to keep up with the expectations of others and his decisions weren't guided by someone else's values. His confidence didn't come from the approval of others. He knew that he was the son of God and he knew that God was pleased with him and he knew that his mission was not to keep the Jewish rulebook in order but actually to turn it on its head. And so he was brave enough to spend a night at Zacchaeus' house because he knew that it was more important to do that than to keep everyone else happy. When I was in high school, I had this little catchphrase, embracing individuality. It was born out of my desire to walk confidently in my own skin without having to conform to the pressures of fitting into all of the social constructs around me. I recognised that if I maj- measured my value and my worth by the judgments of others, then I would allow myself to be valued by the type of jeans I wore, the size of my body, the bronzed tone of my skin or lack thereof. Whether I wore makeup was coordinated and athletic, popular or outgoing. And I knew that if I allowed myself to be valued by these judgments, pretty soon I would find myself lacking in confidence and in esteem and crippled to make any decisions for myself because instead I was always looking to others in order to be accepted. And so instead, I focused on embracing my individuality. And I made a little poster and I put it in my locker to remind me as a constant reminder. And I kept these little exercise books at home that were filled with truths from the Bible that informed my opinion of who I was. And there were truths like this. I am God's masterpiece, fearfully and wonderfully made. I was planned with a purpose. I am loved. I am chosen adopted as God's child. And the spirit of God, who is greater than any enemy in the world, lives in me. Sometimes I think the 34-year-old Beck needs to spend a bit of time with the 17-year-old Beck again. The one who embraced who God had made her to be and distanced herself from the pressure of social constructs. Because the 34 year old Beck works in an environment where everyone is seeking to prove their worth and it is hard not to get caught up in that. And the 34 year old Beck is a mother to four young children in a world where social media makes it pretty easy to feel like a lousy mum. And the 34-year-old Beck usually avoids bold, courageous decisions because she'd prefer to stay within the safety net of people just thinking she's great. And so maybe, like me, you need to spend some time growing in confidence of who you are. Because if we are going to challenge social hierarchy to live boldly and courageously, to make unpopular decisions based on our God-given convictions, then we need to live with confidence of knowing who we really are. And the only way that we can truly know who we are is by seeking to see ourselves the way that God sees us. And if we see ourselves the way that God sees us, what is truly important in our day to day will become clearer. And finally, when I look at the interactions between Jesus and Zacchaeus, I notice that Jesus offered love instead of judgment. Instead of giving Zacchaeus the judgment speech that he deserved, Jesus offered him the honour of hosting him in his home. It was a costly demonstration of unexpected love. One afternoon a few weeks ago, I found myself on hands and knees in one of the kids' bedrooms, trying to clean it up again. And um, as I did, I found myself becoming increasingly frustrated by the constant mess that it is. And as I tried to direct the kids towards things that maybe they could put away, um, I began to sift through the layers of toys and clothes that lay scattered all over the floor and I found myself saying this is ridiculous it's not okay for you to make all of this mess and then say you're too exhausted and it's too hard and leave it all for mummy to pack up it's not okay it's not fair to mummy I was a little bit tired maybe that day and later that night when everything was tidy and calm and all was packed up and I was tucking my big girl into bed. She said, Mum, do you love me even when I'm ridiculous? (laughs) Now, I never told her that she was ridiculous. I told her that the mess was ridiculous. But it's a very natural thing to build our identity on what we do. And so, When she asked me if I still loved her when she's ridiculous, I said, yes, honey, I always love you. And there was a short pause. And she said, so you don't love the ridiculous things that I do, but you'll always love me? And I said, yes, honey, that's true. And after processing this for a few moments, she went on to say, Why do you love me, Mum? And to this question, I always say, I love you because you're mine. I don't say, I love you because you're beautiful or because you're a good helper or because you're kind or because you're funny, although she is all those things and I affirm those things in her character at other times. But I say, I love you because you're mine. God has extended his unexpected love to us by sending Jesus to live and to die and to restore our relationship with him. And he didn't do it because we're good. And he didn't do it because we deserve it. And he didn't do it because we're kind or capable or hardworking. He did it because he loves us and he loves us because he made us and we are his. And so I'm hoping that when my little girl looks up at me, on a day when she knows she hasn't been perfect and she asks why I love her, I hope that my response might teach her something about who she is and where her value comes from. Jesus had this amazing ability to stand with the oppressed while at that same time also offering unexpected love to the oppressor. He neither endorsed the oppression or ostracised the oppressor. Instead, he loved him. Jesus didn't show Zacchaeus what people thought of him through words of judgment. Jesus showed Zacchaeus what God thought of him through an act of love because God's love has no boundaries and God welcomes everyone into his story. And so I wonder what people God has placed in your life that might need a little less judgment and a little more love. Jesus postured himself in such a way that prioritised showing Zacchaeus how much he was loved, not pointing out all of his many failings. He has demonstrated to us that his love is for everyone, the social outcasts, the greedy the oppressors as well as the oppressed. And his interactions with Zacchaeus prompted a radical transformation in his life. Zacchaeus actually ended up giving half of his wealth away to the poor and actually paying back four times as much to those people that he'd cheated. Zacchaeus received costly love from Jesus and he responded by publicly committing himself to beginning To show costly love to the very community that he had harmed. Jesus' gift of love and grace empowered and motivated Zacchaeus to offer costly love to others. So as the band comes up to play, I wonder what it is that stands out to you. Is there something that needs to shift for you if you are going to posture yourself... Just as Jesus did. Do you need to be more responsive to God's promptings? To live with the bigger picture in mind, but not to have your blinkers on? To be open to what it is that the Holy Spirit has to reveal to you about what's actually important in your day. Do you know who you are? Perhaps... If you're going to walk confidently as a follower of Jesus, you need to accept the fact that God has already accepted you. And you don't need to search for acceptance from others. Maybe this week you need to open your Bible and discover some of the truths that are in there about who you are. Maybe you need to spend some time asking God to reveal to you how He sees you. Because there is freedom that comes from knowing who you are as a child of his and his freedom empowers us to live boldly and courageously as he leads And do you need to give love who do you give love to I've had to choose this one a little bit more intentionally this year, I've had a bit of a bumpy start to the year at work and there's been a few interactions that I have found really hard I've felt squashed And I've felt like it's been unfair, I've felt unappreciated, and my confidence has taken a bit of a hit. And I've felt sad, but I've also felt angry. I've wanted the people who are opposing me at work to be pulled into line. I've wanted someone to step up and to go into battle for me. But I've also spent some time reading my Bible and talking to Jesus he's reminded me that I'm an ambassador for him in my workplace. And I'm one of few. (laughs) And those people that I'm really struggling with, who I'm finding a little hard to love, he really loves them. (laughs) And he's challenged me to pray for them. And so in my car on the way to work, I've begun to pray for the people that I'm finding hard to love. And I've been asking God to help me to love them. I can't promise you today that if you go boldly into your home or into your school or your workplace and you offer costly acts of unexpected love, that the people who oppose you will experience a radical transformation and they will pay you But if we're going to live as followers of Jesus, then I think we need to live a quietly loud life. We need to be ambassadors for him that are responsive to his promptings. We need to be confident in knowing who we are in amongst all of the competing ideologies. And by giving love in the place of judgment, we can work to help others experience the kind of transforming love God has on